Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm hoping the Big Ten has to modify their system for us. <laughs> Probably like getting grade 10 sandpaper rubbed on your face every day. I mean, we say it all the time, whether, you know, there's two types of turds, you're a sinker or you're a floater, but you're still a turd, right? I mean, um, we're, we're, we are about players and players playing the plays and not necessarily the plays. Welcome to the Varsity Club Podcast. My name is Derek Peterson. Joining me this week, he's he's back from a, a one-week hiatus. We gave him the week off. Greg Smith is back on the podcast. Greg, how are you? I'm very well, man. How are you? I'm 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 good. I'm better than the NBA, though. The NBA conveniently made it 22 teams in their restart so that they could sneak the New Orleans Pelicans in there and then put the Pelicans in their first national TV game back. And now Zion Williamson might not be there for the game. Did you hear about this? I, I did see that. And I feel like we had this exact same discussion when they put them on TV a bunch to start the season. And then he wasn't there. Like, I, I mean, at this point, like, we understand what they're trying to do. But, man, they're going to have yeah. to, like, flex their games in or something, like, yeah. before you can actually count on that. Like, they, that has to make them very nervous. So this one's obviously different because he's going for a family emergency. So I don't want to make too many jokes about him leaving. But it, it is just funny that, that um, the entire like NBA lexicon is Zion Williams and everything. He's on the cover of a 2K game after playing 19 games in his rookie season. Um, and he he's 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 once again um, might miss a nationally televised game early on in in a quote-unquote season. I guess we'll probably just end up calling this like a new season. This would be just like the second season for, for the, the 2021 Yeah, I don't know how to, don't know how to classify it because it doesn't – it never talked to you a little bit about this. Like it doesn't feel right yet um, for me, and it doesn't really feel like a continuation of what was going on. That was – I was thinking back to it like when the season stopped, I was so locked in on what was happening as the Lakers are kind of ramping up and – they had beat Boston and they beat the Clippers and like we, we were rolling. Right. And then yeah. everything happened. And now I'm just like, well, where the heck are we? Like, it's just a, it's just very odd. Um, Greg, today we're going to talk about um, the coronavirus, obviously, because that's all we've talked about for months and its impact on football um, on, was it Thursday? The NCAA released kind of a, a, a document outlining for the, is it, it, it's just the Power Five programs right now, correct? Yeah, yeah correct. But the group um, of five, so I think the group of five said that they want to mirror it or even try and go more stringent if they can. Okay, so return to sport guidelines. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to make you adhere to the same thing because I don't want to res- restrict your free speech, Greg. <laughs> but I am going to try to stay as apolitical as possible. Um, in talking about this, because I know it just kind of like this conversation just lends itself to devolving into political commentary. So I will try to avoid that because I know people are listening to this for sports, even though we have 
differing opinions sometimes. Um, there's a comment from NCAA President Mark Emmert in this this release of their guidelines where he says, um, this document lays out the advice of healthcare professionals as to how to resume college sports if we can achieve an environment where COVID-19 rates are manageable. Today, sadly, the data point in the wrong direction. If there is to be college sports in the fall, we need to get a much better handle on the pandemic. So those are clearly pointed comments. Um, it, th th that's that's clearly him. I don't know, shaking a finger at the public. Um, I, I've seen a handful of media people blaming particular uh, politicians. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the way to go, but um, it it is interesting that that quote was included in in these guidelines and. This was something that that Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated had kind of reported earlier in the day on Thursday. He'd kind of gotten a hold of the the Power Five document, and and one of the the more interesting things in it was that if a player tests positive, they have to quarantine for ten days. If a player comes into contact with somebody who is positive or symptomatic, they have to quarantine for fourteen days. Greg, does does Emmert's comment about you know, the data pointing in the wrong direction. We have to get a better handle on this if we're going to play. Or any of the guidelines in this document, when you look at it, was your was your thought, okay, this makes it, this gives us a path towards college football? Or was it, okay, this, this seems like college football is now less likely because of this? Oh, boy. It, it's hard because I've read this as it feels like college football is less likely whenever I, I just think that it's hard to take the statement from Emmert and which is we need to get it. And I think he said, we he said we need to get a much better handle on the virus. Um, and we've seen yes. other, and we've seen other conference commissioners now essentially echo those same things. And we've seen a lot of people involved in high levels of college football say that. Right. And I feel like it's a, it's them holding up flashing warning signs saying, hey, guys, we're going in the wrong direction and going to be forced to not have a season because just all over the country, we're going in the wrong direction. And I know and I know you don't like it doesn't I'm going to think of how to not devolve this into a political conversation. But at the same time, it is a a governmental issue because they're related right like i don't think it's almost like on some ways and we do this just to people just do this in general like you want to have your sports disassociated and completely separate from your politics but in this case the direct actions of whatever your local government is your state government and ultimately the federal government as well the response of all of those entities to covid 19 is affecting what's happening in your community and what will ultimately happen with college football. So it is hard to separate them um, because they are linked. Uh, so so it's just tough. But well, that's let me let me jump in here for a second. That's a really good point because SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey um, earlier this week he went on Paul Feinbaum and and he said that exact thing. He said for them to return to football, it's not about the death rate in the country or it's not about any potential illness on or impact on young people. It's about um, not overwhelming public health departments. I think the quote was, let me let me pull it up. The quote was, we need to see the ability for our hospitals and healthcare systems to manage what's happening with COVID. So essentially like they don't want to turn college football stadiums into Petri dishes that can then um, overwhelm a community. So I well, guess, 
responsible. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think that as you see more, like more hospital systems start to either inch towards capacity or be at, in the case of say Miami-Dade, um, you just can't, I just, I just think that college football commissioners don't have any sort of appetite for becoming basically super spreader events and for their college football games to go on. Like I really do. And I think that so much, and I think that honestly think that that notion from Sankey um, or for commissioner Warren, or, you know, when Bob Bowlesby talks or whoever, Scott, whoever talks about this, I think that your average college football fan may be a little surprised to hear them take that line of thinking just because there's been so much talk about, we just got to pay attention to the death rate. We just have to, like, we got to keep the death rate down. And I think that there are a, a whole host of other things that also factor into this. And we're really starting to see this by what the different powers in college football are saying. So, okay, let's talk about just the logistics of this, because the thing that made my eyebrows go up and the thing that made me think, man, this is going to be really hard to pull off. Um, I'm reading, I'm reading directly from Dellinger's story. Those found to have had quote unquote, high risk contact with people who have tested positive will be quarantined for 14 days. This 14 day quarantine is mandatory. Even if those quarantined test negative for the virus, they must still complete the 14 days without competition. So even if you're testing negative, if you've had any kind of contact with anybody who has tested positive or been symptomatic, you are, you are out for 14 days. That is a serious, serious hit. What happens if, if like three, like we know Nebraska, like specifically for Nebraska, we know the team is tight knit. We know that the individual position groups are tight knit rooms. Let's say three defensive backs go to the library or go to, I don't know, something off campus that they're not supposed to be going to because college students are going to do stuff that they're not supposed to do. And all of a sudden you've lost three of your defensive backs for, for 14 days that's going to make things really, really difficult. This this one to me was the one where I was like, man, even if they test negative for the virus, they still have to complete 14 days without competition. When you get into the season, you're talking about 14 days of no practice, 14 days of, of not being in film room with guys, and obviously, you know, the potential for two missed games. That's a problem. That's really tough. Like, I, I do think that that stood out to me as well. Um because, man, I could see. And so my immediate thought on that, honestly, was will that lead to schools wanting to be open because my about everything and what's happening? Because I'm still trying to figure out how it how how do I say this, how you would be able to know that that was the case. If you had that one positive person in the defensive back room, but two other guys came in contact with them and had tested negative, like what's the, what, and I hate to say it this way, but what's the incentive for Nebraska to then release the information on those second two players that they are testing negative, but they have to sit out for 14 days. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's just another one of those things that teams will try to hide. And we're saying Nebraska because it's the team we cover. I'm not like trying to pick on them um, because I don't think that this would be unique to them. Um, it's just real. That's a really difficult situation to put a team in but i understand why you want to go above and beyond um in that case to stop the spread and at the same time that's going to be really really difficult yeah so uh mitch Sherman from the athletic had a sort of a column this week and one of the things he talked about was was kind of um kind of in response to that in response to potentially having 
you know, huge swaths of your team that are unavailable to you in a season. He he recommended just doing away with the redshirt rule. College football players have five years to complete five seasons of eligibility. No, no redshirt rule. He, he the way he kind of structured it was that with the implementation of the four game redshirt rule, you're kind of already trending in that direction anyway. So might as well just rip off the bandaid. Um, it, it removes drama and it's just easier from a roster management standpoint, especially if, if like right now in, in this world of COVID, if you get hit with, um, you know, 10 or 15 players that suddenly can't compete, then you have this kind of extra reserve of guys. What, what are your thoughts on just the red shirt rule generally? And would you be in favor of, of getting rid of it? I mean, I, I mean, I, in general, I actually kind of like the old rule now that we've seen what happens with the four game rule and maybe it's recency bias or just the bias of what happened last year, because I feel like it was something that tripped the coaching staff up where they were always kind of wondering how to get guys into those four games. They didn't really have games in which they were blowing people out and be able to just slide guys in. Um, It was just difficult to manage. So I would actually be either in favor of going back to the old rule where you can't play at all or, you just go ahead and do what Mitch is proposing and just rip the bandaid off and say there are no red shirts. Um, But I do think that that is a nice idea for how you could hope to manage this season because, I mean, we are looking at a situation where you could conceivably have 10 to 15 guys that are unavailable and you do need to be able to have players come in and step in because it also, but that also leads to a different issue that's related, which is... What's the level, what is the threshold, or has it been spelled out yet, what the threshold for amount of people that you have to have out before you would then, like, forfeit a game or have to cancel a game? Because I wonder how they will treat that. Because you could, like, in theory, you could have 10 to 12 guys injured on your team. Like, we've seen, like, really hard-hit teams like Purdue last Mm -hmm. season. Nebraska has had some really rough years recently um, with injuries. So, like, do you treat those like a bunch of guys have like sprained ankles or do you, or or is it a different threshold where if you get to double digits, you automatically have to shut it down? Like, I I wonder how they determine that. I feel like that would be one of those things that would be left up to each individual school's discretion. Right. I don't know that you would put a mandate in or or a a guideline or something like that. Like if a team wants to play with 40 scholarship players, like, I mean, I guess it, it could, unless you're worried about the the community spread aspect of it or the, the potential to spread. If you've got a bunch of asymptomatic guys that, I don't know. I don't know. Um, do you think that coaches have quite figured out yet how to manage the redshirt rule? Not, not specifically Nebraska in general, but it seems like there are well, it not seems like there are varying approaches to managing the redshirt rule um, around the country. Does it does it feel to you like college football has figured out how to properly manage a a true freshman that can play four games in his first year and still redshirt? No, it doesn't feel like that because I feel like you have to. It adds another layer of having to get guys ready that 
may not end up playing or just get like so and, and, and it's kind of a mental issue for those guys for the guys as well because if you think about like if you're a player your player x at wide receiver and you think that you're going to get in for this game but it doesn't happen you think it's going to happen the next game but it doesn't happen and so do you continue to prepare the same way um knowing that it might not happen and you can preserve a retro like i think it's just a lot of back and forth that creates some confusion for everyone involved. So no, I don't think that they have a real good handle on, on how to properly utilize that yet. It also creates a little bit of drama, unnecessary drama, where we're constantly talking about, you know, like last year, Bryce Benhart, um, or, you know, talking about some of those fringe guys that you know, that you can kind of sense that coaches don't want to play because they don't think that the guy is ready, but because of the redshirt rule, they kind of feel like they're obligated to put him in four games. Right. It kind of, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's it's one of those things where, and maybe obligation is a good word, where they feel like we have these four games, so we have to use these four games, even if we don't think the guy is absolutely ready for those four games. And so where are we going to put him in where we're going to, you know, do the least amount of damage? Exactly. Kind of like Ramir Johnson maybe is another guy that you think of from the specific team from last year. Yeah, I, I think it does feel like a sense of obligation. And I, you can kind of tell, especially because we mentioned Ben Hart, like Greg Austin was annoyed at probably the halfway point of the season, maybe even earlier, by the constant questions about working Bryce Ben Hart in as well. Yeah. Um, let's let's transition to the the juco level and we can i mean we'll still continue to have a, a conversation about eligibility because this is the big thing that no one seems to um have a firm answer for yet with with the njca kind of moving um fall football to the spring it 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 creates a lot of interesting questions conversations discussions um at both the juco level and also the fbs level and i talked to a couple coaches this week Greg, who uh, about how this is going to impact recruiting, um, and I asked I, I asked the football coaches association president if, to his knowledge, moving uh, signing day dates was on the table, and he said no. Um, they will play in March. Their their regular season will begin in March, which is obviously a month after National Signing Day. Um, if they have guys who have firm offers right now and we're on track to be mid-year guys in this 2021 class they're telling them just to go uh, if you're ready to graduate to just go they're not going to have fall film fall tape but they still want those guys to go um, there are guys on teams who have who have been there and their kind of clock is ticking and so they're telling those guys to go uh, they'll get to practice this fall for 60 consecutive days um, one of the coaches told me that that if they want to practice all 60 consecutive days they can there's not going to be a mandate on practice time or anything like that, but they're obviously not going to go 60 straight days of practice. Um, this, the, I think the biggest thing that this creates is just a big giant question with recruiting because everybody kind of agrees that there's still going to be a demand for junior college players, even though those players didn't play um, a fall 2020 season. Greg, do you kind of, I guess did you did you were were there any questions that popped up in your mind when you were reading through uh, the write up that I had this week? Were there any questions that that you had when the NJCA announced this decision? Do you have anything that you can provide on how this is going to impact recruiting going forward? I mean, this is all like 
Like, I don't even know what questions to ask because there are like no answers to any of these. Yeah, it's a, it's a really unique, complicated situation, which I feel like all of the response to COVID has kind of prepared us for this. Um, that's been the same way as it's evolving, and this will be as well. Um, I admit, so I have a lot of questions um, and not a lot of answers at this point. Um, one of them being, and then, well, it's a question. How do you, and we've seen, we've all seen Last Chance You, right? So there's your, your frame of reference point for what it can sometimes be like for coaches and um, educators and administrators to keep guys on track in the classroom, even as they have offers and they have a football season, right? So my first thing, honestly, that I thought of was how do you keep guys focused mentally in the classroom without having the structure of football and without being able, um, in some cases, being able to have them in person in classes right away, like that whole portion of it which could lead to guys falling through the cracks um, and potentially losing out, I think is a huge question mark um, within all of this is kind of the first thing that I thought of. The second thing I thought of was to make a comparison um, for a couple of guys at Nebraska signed in this last um, recruiting class is that I don't think that this will be a problem for your Omar Mannings of the world, right? So yeah. at this time last year, Omar had been here on an official visit. Um, everybody knew that Omar Manning was Nebraska's top guy, um, and he was several other teams' top guys, right? Um, but so he wouldn't have an issue. He'd still get recruited. Everything would still go as normal for him. But on the flip side, uh, Bob Maga uh, Clements, um, the linebacker out of Diablo Valley, California, burst on the scene late, right, after having a really good season at his JUCO in which uh, he was an all-conference player, racked up a ton of tackles, had really good film, right? And then he was kind of seen by Barrett Rude and, and was able to then get a scholarship and came out and offered. He was still relatively unknown even when he came out for his official visit back in, what, De December? I want to say I get my dates mixed up. Um, and so that type of situation, how would how would a guy like him get his big opportunity if there is no season or if, there, if the season is delayed and you're just practicing? And so that those situations are going to be tough. There's going to be a whole there are a lot more guys like that than there are like Omar Manning um, when it comes to junior college recruiting. So that's going to be really tough. And so to me, the part of the recruiting impact then is having people on your college staff that have good connections in JUCO that also have trustworthy um, relationships with different coaches to be able to let's say, hey, I've got a kid that's obviously flying under the radar because we, we're not playing. Um, you might want to take a look at him. Okay, here's our first, you know, of those 60 days of practice. Here's our first 14 days of practice film. Um, and he's looking good, like that sort of thing. Like it's keeping your ear to the ground as a college coach and recruiter with those JUCO guys is going to be so key if you want to end up coming out with some diamonds in the rough out of this situation. You're describing Ryan Held without directly naming him. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, the academics thing is interesting. Um, I think all, every coach will tell you the same thing, that now the focus has to be squarely on academics. One thing that, that was interesting um, that I didn't know of is that there's no academic requirement for um, incoming freshmen. I mean, obviously, they haven't had any college courses yet for incoming freshmen at the junior college level, but immediately after their first semester, they have to have been in 12 hours and they have to have a two point GPA. 
Um, and so for any guys who who come in now and go through this fall without football, if they don't have like where they would normally be immediately eligible to play football, if they go through and they don't have a two point GPA at the end of the fall semester, then when spring starts, they won't get to play. And that's something that they haven't had to deal with yet. Um, the other thing was was I had one guy tell me that just kind of because of the the schedule for everything and, and when um, COVID kind of started to to break out, it was in like March mid-March um, to April, I think, when schools started canceling everything. Um, they they kind of viewed this, this 2019 spring semester as a throwaway semester just because of, um, you know, all this stuff got sprung on everybody all at once. And, and I had a guy tell me that they kind of relaxed their, um, their restrictions or, or rules. They were pretty lax with, with the way that semester ended. Um, and that's obviously not going to be the case. And they got to figure out how to get guys back in to the swing of things. Um, the really, the really interesting point, and this kind of gets back to eligibility, having, you know, five years to play five seasons and doing away with red shirts and kind of getting rid of some of this, this potential headache is, um, instead of like where typically you would have a junior college guy who's a three for two guy. Yep. Now, like you could have a guy who's a three for three guy because they didn't play. Um, or the coaches that I talked to said, well, you could get a guy that's a four for three guy. How does this impact a, a, a FBS team that's recruiting? Because if you're recruiting junior college players, you're recruiting to fill in the junior class. You're recruiting to, to um, fill somewhat a stopgap, really. Um, and now if instead you're getting a, a four for three guy that's going to be around for a while, how does this, how does this change recruiting if suddenly they have another year of, of – um, eligibility coming from the JUCO level. It, it changes it a lot because one of the things in speaking specifically to Nebraska, and you can think through this, um, I wish I had, had it in front of me, the, the junior college guys that Nebraska has brought in, by and large, it feels like have a, a lot of times had more than just the two for traditional two for two JUCO, like coming from JUCO eligibility. They've done a nice job of finding those guys um, that maybe have three years. And so it ends up taking it, it ends up changing the, the math that you do in your head a little bit about how um, quickly those guys can see the field or how much, because I think part of it is, is that Nebraska's line of thinking is the more time that we can keep, get them in the program and have them developing, especially with Zach Duvall, uh, the better off our team will be in the long run. Um, and so continuing to find guys that have maybe even one more year of eligibility um, or can, or have that red shirt still preserved, I think will be a huge key um, because Nebraska those guys in the program for longer to continue to develop and it doesn't make you you don't have to rush the process with that guy and throw someone in who might not be ready uh, so I definitely think that that would be a big deal to be able to get an additional year back for some of those guys but I'll tell you from my end it is hard enough keeping up with that and who's three for three and who's two for two and three for two and all of that it's going to be a nightmare trying to like nail down who has what eligibility coming out of this situation. Yeah. Off the top of my head, Deontay Williams was one of those guys, right? That had three years. Yep. He came in as a, as a sophomore, Juco sophomore. And in this class, isn't Nico Cooper. Yeah. That was the first classified name. as a sophomore. Yeah. Nico was yeah. one. Okay. And I, I thought that, by Maga Clemens, I thought that he had an additional year as well, but I would have to double check that. No, he's a junior. Okay, he's a junior. 
Um, so decisions to make. A couple decisions to make. One of them in the running back room for uh, for Ryan Held. Held was on Sports Nightly uh, earlier this week and talked about his kind of five-man running back rotation that he's got. It's it's potentially going to be a really good room um, both this season and moving forward. He's got a senior that everybody's excited about in Dedrick Mills, and he's got four freshmen, two of them redshirt freshmen, that, that everybody's excited about. Um, he talked about Ramir Johnson adding weight and working on his kind of pass-catching game. Uh, he talked about Ronald Tompkins being an X-factor for them and trying to put himself in a position to play a role. Uh, if there is a 2020 season, he talked about Marvin Scott being just a bowling ball. And we kind <laughs> of uh, saw a picture of Marvin Scott or a video of Marvin Scott from Zach Duvall this week. Uh, and he looks like he's 40 and married with two children um, and not, what is he, 18, 17? Yeah. And he talked about Savion Morrison, who um, has been described as one of the more complete backs that they have on their roster. Um and he, he looks like he's put on weight as well. And then Ryan Held also has Brody Belt, who he really likes. He says he's one of the faster players on the team and, and an underappreciated walk-on guy. So, Greg, when you look at the running back room, somebody asked us this in the mailbag this week. Who's the number two? Who do you think becomes the the number two this season? It seems like there's a there's a split between people that think one of these these freshmen, these true freshmen, can come in and, and take that job right away and, and – play significant snaps and not redshirt. Um, and then I, I'm pretty sure you are on the Ramir Johnson train, are you not? I am. Okay. Um, and the, the reason for that is, it's, it's really interesting. I thought the, the two things that Held mentioned about Ramir and what he's been doing are the exact two things that I think can help him to keep a leg up on the incoming freshman that's he needed to add weight, obviously. Um, but he also needs to continue to round out his game and become more versatile because if he can do that, if he can, especially, well, both of them are important, but especially the second part about rounding out his game, because that means that he can be more complimentary to Diedrich Mills. Um, and that's really the role that you're trying to carve out as that number two back in my mind um, this year, because we know that Diedrich is going to be the bell cow um, as at the running back spot. And I think that people are rightfully very excited about what he can do in this season. But you do need, if you can have that complimentary piece to him, and if you could have um, Ramir or whoever it would be, be a second back that can also be on the field to make you more versatile uh, because he can also catch the ball out of the backfield. That just makes your offense that much more dangerous. Then um, we know that Ramir has the track speed and that, you know, once he gets in that second level, that he could be dangerous. But it's just getting there. Um, and that kind of goes with the weight. But I'm, I'm still very high on him. Um, I think he's a hard worker. I think he's a kid that they like for a reason. Um, but that is not to discount count the two freshmen scott and morrison either uh because i think that they're both going to be very good players for nebraska at some point too well the other guy and and i know you didn't do this on purpose just then or do this for any reason other than you were talking about johnson and then talking about the two freshmen but the guy that gets left out of these conversations is ronald tompkins um and held said then and he said this week because this has been kind of his talking point ever since they signed Ronald Tompkins was that up until Tompkins got injured in high school, they felt like he could have gone anywhere in the country. And you've said the same thing. I know, um, held said that, that he is 
an X factor for them, whatever that means. And then Travis Fisher uh, was on Sports Nightly later in the week, I think Thursday night, and he said something similar about Noah Pola Gates in the secondary, who also is going to be coming off an injury. He's a redshirt freshman. Um, he, I, I think he said uh, he's so much more mature, and we're going to see some great things coming out of him this year. For for both of those guys, one on offense, one on defense, Greg, is it is it something where we can expect a role from them, or is are you still in the camp of saying anything you get from either of those guys at this point because of the injury is just the cherry on top? I think they're both in the case of the, what we get from them this year is the cherry on top and hopefully a building block to confidence that we're going to get more out of it in the future. I think it would be huge for both of those players um, to be able to get on the field in some shape or fashion this season to show a little bit and then give it not only it'll give, uh, it'll give the coaches and fans um, confidence that they're going to see more out of them. But I think more importantly, it gives them confidence in themselves that they're back from these injuries and that they can go out there and contribute and be the types of players that they were projected to be. Because like you mentioned about time, um, he could have gone anywhere before that injury. He was very, very good. If you talk to the coaches down um, at Grayson High School where he went to, of all of the D1 players that they had on that team, they say that he was their best all-around player. And that includes um, the five-star linebacker, Owen Papo, who's now at Auburn and starting there at linebacker. Um, nice blast from the past of a name there. Um and then Noah Pola Gates, remember how excited people were to get him um, in that secondary. And he's a guy that fits really well in what Fisher wants. And I thought that it was great to hear Fisher say the thing about this is sometimes a really overlooked thing, but about him maturing during the offseason, um, which really means that he's taking his work in on and off the field a lot more seriously um, and that he's really starting to round into form mentally, which which is great because he had all the physical tools. He just has to get over that injury. Um, but I think anything that you get from those two is, is a cherry on top. And they both could could still have bright futures at Nebraska. They're still so young. Yeah. Well, Greg, you got work to do, um, so I will let you get back to it. Thanks for joining the podcast this week, talking football. Yeah, thanks for having me. We will be back next week with another one. Uh, in the meantime, keep reading HailVarsity.com. I say this every week. Subscribe to Jay Moore's More To It podcast. Subscribe to the Hail Varsity radio show. It's on iTunes. Uh, and read Hail Varsity. That's it. Three things. Read HailVarsity.com. Subscribe to two other podcasts. We'll be back next week. Thanks, guys.